Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Today we're in the book of Titus starting in chapter 2. And today we're talking about kind of God's design for his communities, and he, he breaks them down into different groups, into different generational groups. So we're going to get into it. But before we do, let's take a couple minutes and do what we do on a Sunday morning. We believe we live in a very critical culture. And most of the time, that, that criticalness is fueled by pride and not teachability. And we know that in this space, right here, right now, the Holy Spirit is here, God is here. And he brought us together so that we might open his word, that we might see and be reminded of his goodness, and that he might grow us into the ways of Jesus. And so we come into this space, not formed by a culture of criticalness, but instead asking the question, where is God speaking to us today? How can we contribute to the conversation of faith that's unfolding right here and right now? So we're just going to pray that the Holy Spirit does that this morning, that, that we can see the goodness of God in our text. I'm going to ask that you pray. Uh, for yourself, that the Spirit might move. And today we're going to talk about older, wiser saints. So you're definitely going to pray for me today, okay, that I don't offend some people, all right? So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. Once again, in the chaos of the world, it's really just lovely to come into this space and, and be reoriented around what's truly good, to be reminded that you're moving in our midst, whether we see it or whether we don't, and, and simply just to remember that you are worthy of worship and nothing else is because it can't withstand the weight of our worship. So if nothing else, Holy Spirit, remind us of those things this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to us today as we open your scripture. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit this morning, that God does a work here and now. I'm going to ask you to pray for me, that God might use the preparation and the study just to paint a picture of, of his design for our church communities, that we might hear from God, not from a person, and be encouraged this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1, 2, and 3 this morning. Before we get there, I think we have a, a unique time, space right now, this cultural moment, if you will. I am every single day, this is going to be shocking, getting older. Somebody, I know, I know, uh, somebody reminded me, really depressing, we'll lead with the downside. They said that no one, there will never be more older people alive than, than the day you were born, Right? If you think about that, like there's never going to be more people older than you in this life than the day you were born. And that's true and that sticks with you and that's sad. And I find more gray hairs every single day. And two weeks ago, I celebrated one of my best friend's 40th birthday and it hit him like a train and kept running him over, right? He just did not handle it well. A friend flew in from out of town and we were not allowed to say birthday weekend 40. We just pretended like there's this big thing in the room that didn't exist, you know? 
I remember now that I'm not in that target demographic of 24 to 35, so I have to like scroll down on the checklist box when it says, you know? And every time I do that, I'm like, oh, the good old days have passed me by. <laughs> Commercials aren't geared towards me. I don't know half the words young people use anymore. Tick and talk. I don't even have any idea, nor do I want to know. And that's really what you know when you're old is that I don't even care. You just do you and don't bother me, all right? I think that when we talk about getting older in the church, we have to ask the question, how do we deal with the aging of our people, with generational differences? And here, here's what I want to bring up. I think in our, in our country, what we don't do well is value aging demographics. There's studies out there and articles out there on something called the graying of America. You guys know what that is? The graying of America is not a problem. I think it's an opportunity, everybody. It's just simply the idea that in a few decades, there will be more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18. The Census Bureau put out numbers recently, and they said in less than two decades, the graying of America will be inescapable. Older adults are projected to outnumber kids for the first time in U.S. history. I wonder how well we value the older, wiser saints among us. If you look at more Asian cultures, when you talk about how people get older, usually it's something that's celebrated and taken care of. I think in the States, we don't do that very well. There's a poll that Pew Research did a few years ago, and it asked about 3,000 adults, maybe a little more than that. um, And it, it just said, hey, what are some things you look at when you get older? And in 2020, it was a global study, actually. 105 countries were assessed in an effort to rank order them from the best to worst places to live for older adults. It took things into, into perspective, like aging, uh, life expectancy. It talked about healthcare, safety, happiness, cost of living. According to this study, the best countries in the world were Finland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Australia, Austria, Canada, Norway, New Zealand, and Spain. So if you're getting older, look at those countries. U.S. was 28th, right? U.S. was 28th. And one, um, one anthropologist named Jared Diamond said that Protestantism at play in Western cultures tends to be youth-centric, emphasizing attributes like individualism and independence. I love what he says about the why. He said this relates back to the Protestant work ethic, which ties an individual's value to his or her ability to work something that diminishes in old age. I I do. I think as a country, I don't think we've solved the problem yet of how to value the elderly among us. I think you see that with ads that are targeted to specific peoples, but I I think it infiltrates the church. I've talked to so many people that don't feel like they have a place in the church anymore because we want to get younger and we want to be relevant, and, and those things aren't bad. But what do we lose? What do we lose when we lose the ability for all of us to contribute to the work of Jesus? That's what... Paul's going to write to Titus and talk about today. He's going to write and say, hey, hey, this is how we all contribute to following Jesus together. Start in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, but as for you, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. Before he breaks it down into different groups, he's going to remind them why he's writing. And this is why we called the series Transformed. Because coming out of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Paul's going to make a pretty hard pivot. And he's going to say this, that because you were influenced by culture, you're not being as different as you should be. So last week we talked about how their teaching was wrong because it's influenced by Greek cultures, Roman cultures, and specifically Jewish cultures. And he says, you have got it backwards. Your culture has influenced your gospel. Your gospel has influenced your culture. Stop. And so he says, don't do that. And he addresses the people in the church and he says, but... As for you, 
He's making a case in this chapter and the next that the way our gospel changes us should change everything about us. And so the next couple chapters are lists of qualities of how we are supposed to be different than the world around us. But as for you, communicate the behavior with sound teaching. And we've talked about it before, and we're going to keep talking about it all through this book. You cannot have true belief if you don't have actions that follow. You can know God, but you can't fully know God until you experience God. And I know that because I have two kids now and not one kid now. And I read books on one kid. I thought I had it down. Then I had one, and I realized I didn't know what I was talking about, but I could pass the test. And then I had a second kid, and I realized it was going to be difficult, and I read the books about it, and I talked to friends about it, but nothing prepared me for not sleeping all night long with a newborn and my three-year-old running in the room at 6 a.m. with a princess dress on, a tiara, earrings, high heels, and glitter jumping on me and saying, Dad, it's good morning time, okay? (laughs) Nothing prepared me for that hardship, and I knew it was coming. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. And all throughout the New Testament, the writer said, if you believe that God is truly good, it changes how you live in a way that is good. And so he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be different. You're going to communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. Because if God is really good, we want to live out that goodness in our world. And it's for all of us. So when it says that word communicate there, some of your Bibles, I don't know what version you use. I use the NET version to teach from. So mine says communicate. The NIV there would say it a little differently. The NIV says must teach. The NASB says proclaim the things. There are 13 imperatives in the book of Titus, 13. That means there are 13 times when Paul says do this, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Three of them are specifically culturally tied to their relationship, Paul and Titus. Ten of them, the ones we have left, are kind of the core of chapters two and three. The first one was in the last chapter where he says to check people and, re- and revoke, if you will, um, false teachers. This is the second one. He says you must communicate. That, that word communicate in the Greek, if your Bible has teach, doesn't necessarily mean teach. We have to understand the differences between this church and that church. They were house churches that met all over the place. They met in living rooms and they met in, 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 ba- in bedrooms. They met in front lawns. They met in kind of what we did during COVID. When we think teach now, we think there's a stage and there's some lights and there's some people that listen. The word literally just means utterances. So, so it doesn't necessarily mean you gotta preach on a Sunday morning or you have to lead a small group, even though that's fantastic. What it means is in whatever way you communicate, you communicate the behavior that goes along with sound doctrine. I've said time and time again that my favorite definition of preaching, my favorite, is it did I have a good Sunday this week or will I have a better Sunday next week or did I hit a single this week or a home run this week? I don't think preaching is defined best as a single message. I think it's defined as the weight of influence over time. I think that's what teaching is. Whether you have small kids getting larger or large kids that still look back on how you raised them, it's the weight of influence over time. And why he's saying this to Titus, this is a pastoral epistle, right? So it's, it's instructions for Paul to Titus on how to be pastorally. He's saying this so that they all might realize that they all have a role in shepherding this church along. So it's not just for pastors. It's not just for Titus. It's for all of us as we follow Jesus together, but we must communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. He's saying in this text that the standards are not only intended for the super spiritual or the official leaders of the church or the congregation, but that that these are standards for all people that follow Jesus. So this is how you didn't do it right, but this is who you are now, but. 
but you might communicate the behavior that goes with really, really sound doctrine, really knowing, having a healthy relationship. So the word sound means there with God. And then he dives in after that. And he starts with some pairings. And he starts with older men. So you know the first thing we have to do here, I have the job of defining older, okay? And here's what it is. A year older than you. Let's go home, all right? (laughs) If I ever get asked that question, I just want you to know the growth that's happened in me since I've been here for 13 or so years. Got here when I was 25-ish, four years old. And I remember we were in a staff meeting and somebody said something about like a mid-50-year-old. And I said, man, that's old. I did not make that same mistake twice. (laughs) Last week, somebody said something about somebody 65. I said, that is not that old. And I almost got a standing ovation upstairs, all right? So we have to define old. I think it's really interesting. There was a, a study done. Again, this is by Pew, about three, 4,000 people. And they asked, they said, what percent, how do you know that you're old? And they gave them different things and different percentage of the people said, yeah, this means you're old. I'll give you an example. 13% said you're old if you have gray hair, right? 13%. That's why I plucked mine out one by one with tweezers, all right? <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. Uh, 23% of people say you're older if you retire from work. 32% said being old is defined by being 65 or above. 45% says you're old if you have trouble walking upstairs. I've been old since I was nine, you know. Uh, 62% said that you're old if you're over 75. And finally, 79% of people said you're old if you're over 85 years old. So we have to define what old means in a culture where it kind of fluctuates, where age necessarily isn't a number, but a state of mind. I've heard that. I keep saying that the older I get, you know. In this current context, day and age, in the Roman world, you really had, you didn't have all these different differentiations. You you didn't have like empty nesters and you didn't have young adult. You had young and you had old and had to define it. So what Paul does here with these definitions, this week with older men, older women, next week younger women, younger men, what he does, and this is what happens so often in the gospel, is Paul and Jesus did this too, is they take social structure structure that's already in place and they transform that into something that's good. They said, you already have this label, let me show you how this label then points to a greater good of God. And so he says, hey, you're already divided by this, by culture, and that's a fine thing, let me tell you what that looks like. And in the Roman world, young and old were differentiated by one thing, Do your kids still live with you or do your kids have kids? And so normally in the Roman world, you are older if your kids have kids and have a family of their own. That was it. Usually around the age of 30 to 40 in this time and place. But a big point of emphasis here is not that he's just speaking to older people. He's using a grouping that already exists and he's talking about what it means to follow Jesus. So if you're under 40 right now, you're thinking, cool, I can check my phone in that TikTok thing. Nope right? We listen because these are examples for, these are lists for all of us. And and, and he starts with the older, I think, for a reason. So he's making a case how the gospel transforms our communities. He's going to start with family codes, dynamics, intergroupings within our current structures of society. And he's going to start with the older. And and, and look, it's not in the text. I, I think he starts with the older because I think hopefully they're in a place where they can hear it better. When we're young, we get offended when we're told we're not, we're not enough. When we're older, I'm hoping I know that by now, you know? I think when we're older, some things hopefully happen. One, you get a little softer in age, and two, you're willing to lay down preferences on the altar of progress or growth for other people. And so he starts with the older and wiser saints among them, and he says, hey guys, so to the older ones, let me start here. This is what you're called into. And he starts with the older men. 
And he said, you are to be temperate, dignified, and self-controlled. Those three words there kind of have a, a theme that runs throughout all of them. We're going to move through these characteristics pretty quickly to get to our big idea. But when, when he talks about the idea of temperate, really what he means there is not just sober, but it just means that basically you don't do anything in excess, that you live in a place that is moderated not by your biggest desire, but by your overall good. I think we're a country that doesn't do well with temperateness. I think we like to dive into the deep end of, of, of excess. I was reading about how food has changed. If you've never seen the documentary Super Size Me, it's worth a watch. Um, but more than that, what stuck out to me was it's about a guy that, that, if you don't know it, about a decade ago, maybe longer than that, but he, he eats McDonald's every day, three meals a day for 30 days, and he sees how it changed his body. And he started overweight and he ended with a six-pack. <laughs> Kidding. Um, didn't go so well for him. But one of the things that it talks about is just how our portion size has grown over time in the country. For example, in 1960, the typical diameter of a dinner, dinner plate was seven inches. Now, dinner plates in the U.S. are 13 inches. It's a 36% increase by size. I mean, you can look at anything you want to and how we've kind of grown in excess. Look at, it's, it's football season. Look at the very first Super Bowl ring versus one we just gave out this last year. I can go back to my grandparents' farm in Iowa. It has not changed since 1950-something. And it paints a different picture of a different life that was moderated by temperateness, not excess. And so I just think what he reminds us of here is, hey, the older you get, I think the more you, you're less inclined to dive into the deep waters of excess and realize there's a value in temperateness. He says, so the older ones among you, be temperate in how you live, be moderate in how you live. Because then the excesses won't control you. There's a book called The Culture of Excess, How America Lost Self-Control and Why We Need to Redefine Success. And what he talks about in that book is he talks about how America has let success drive us and the fear of missing out drive us to where it's, it's created a culture where everything from sharp rises in obesity to corporate fraud to cosmetic medical procedures to, to, to different areas of excess drive us and they increase our panic attacks, our outbreaks, and what they do is they increase our chaos. Because when we dive into the deep waters of excess, oftentimes chaos follows, not control. And so Paul says, to the older ones among you, be in control. And that's a theme running throughout. So he says, be temperate, be dignified. I love, I love this word. Literally, the idea of dignified here means just evoke reverence. Evoke reverence. I think in an athletish, athletish, there's a brand of clothing now. It's like this whole place where you can wear sweatpants to airports. I forget what it's called, but Lululemon thrives in it, right? Um, and, and I think that good, bad, and different, I want to be comfortable, but we've lost the idea of, of evoking some kind of reverence. I was watching uh, a, a quick clip on the latest James Bond movie. And they asked Daniel Craig, the, the Bond, what formed him the most about, because when I think of James Bond, I think of like regal and reverent and suit and tux. And he said, what's the best piece of advice you got to play this character that oftentimes is outdated now? Let's put aside the killing thing, okay? Um, and he said, the first director told Sean Connery to get a suit and to sleep in it and wear it like you never want to take it off. That, that idea that I'm going to be something that you look up to that will be something that's worth looking up to that evokes a reverence in you just by being. That's what it means to be um, in this context. That's what it means to be uh, a kind of someone that is older, to be dignified, 
So he says, be temperate and be dignified. And then finally he says, self-control. You're going to see this run with the women and with young men and young women. But, but simply put, I mean, this is one of the themes in the book is know what controls you and may that which control you be God and not something else. Pretty simple. And the older you get, hopefully we have more control over what controls us. So he paints this picture for these men to grow up in a way that points people to not just their best good or their biggest desire, but something better by the way they live. I love what this one author wrote, because <coughs> if you're tracking along, I'm hearing no fun, no fun, no fun, sad. And this one author wrote, a seriousness of purpose particularly suits the dignity of seniors, yet gravity must never be confused with gloominess. You know, I love that. To remember that we do these things and we're happy about it and we're joyful about it. It's why that new Christian that I haven't watched yet, but The Chosen is a series on and people really like it. I'm still scarred from all the Kirk Cameron Christian media. I can't watch it yet. Um, But they say it's really good. And why is because Jesus is joyful and he's somebody that you're drawn to and that laughs with you and smiles at you. And that's a picture we paint and we can be joyful and laugh and be serious at the same time. We can be joyful and laugh and be sober-minded and self-controlled. We can be these things. Paul says it points to a greater good. So be those together, older men. And then he continues and he says, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Just a quick bit on this one. This goes with kind of the Pauline triad of faith, hope, and love, but he changes it here. Faith, hope, and self-endurance. So he's saying, as you get older, that word sound, again, it's seen in verse one with how we're supposed to teach doctrine, healthy. The word sound is like a healthy knowingness. And so have a healthy relationship with faith, with love, and with endurance. Faith, how you relate to God, love, how you relate to other people around you, and endurance, don't give up on it. I think the older I get, I think hopefully it's happened here and hopefully it'll continue to grow. The older I get, hopefully my faith in God solidifies because I can look back at my past history and see how he's been good in ways I couldn't see in the moment, you know? I think sometimes we have these moments with God where we worship and he speaks to us and the Red River parts and all those Moses moments and those are really great. But the really beautiful ones to me are when I can look back and be like, man, I never thought God was working and he was the whole time. You guys know my story a little bit. I never thought I'd be a pastor of a church. I never thought I'd be a pastor of a church in a suburb of Dallas. I graduated, wanted to move to the coasts, D.C. and San Francisco. I got this job 13 years ago, thinking it would last six months. I'm still here. I got two kids, and I met my wife here, right? God is cruel, but good, all right? (laughs) And I look back and think, man, God has been good to me in ways that I've missed. And what that does is that, that makes my faith in God healthier, makes it more sound. That's what comes with age, this beautiful ability to look behind us and say, I didn't even see God working there, but my goodness, look what he did. Then he says to grow in sound love. And again, this is our relationship with one another. It's the simple question of, as I get older, if I know God more and deeper and better, am I more loving than I was before? That's it. Jesus said we're defined by our love to one another. We're defined by that not our rightness, not how loud we are, not how many times we share the gospel. We are defined by our love for one another. Really simple question if you're knowing and growing in Jesus. Are you knowing and growing in your love for one another? End sentence. So he's saying grow as an older man in your relationship with your ability, your confidence in God, and then grow in your ability to love other people and grow in sound endurance, which simply means that you're not going to give up and that you know that just a bad day-to-day doesn't mean tomorrow is going to be bad. As we get older, what grows in us is our ability to to see the big picture perspective. That's endurance. 
to keep going. My five-month-old woke up two days ago, and he, uh, his eye was like almost swollen shut, you know? And it was like black and everything. And <clears throat> I say that because Sarah and I both looked at his eye and said, oh, that looks horrible. Uh, with our first kid, I would have called the doctor. With their second kid, we said, well, let's see if it goes away. <laughs> we'll check back in a couple hours, right? That's endurance, everybody. Knowing full well that what happens right now doesn't define what happens right next. Saying, hey, I'm going to give this some space to breathe. And if we have a bad day, if we have a bad year, if COVID happens again, God still sits on the throne. I'm going to keep pushing towards the end I know is coming because I've seen it before. Saying, remember that this is who you are as an older, wiser person. Grow in your health to do those things. So then he turns his attention a little bit and he talks to older women Likewise, if you look at the text, it says, and older women, <clears throat> and then my Bible stops. You guys are great. Keep going. All right, everybody? <laughs> my mom and mother-in-law watching. You're perfect. Let's go home. Have a good Sunday. I'm kidding. Let's talk about older women. Um, he says, older women, likewise, are to exhibit behavior fitting for those who are holy. Again, it's going to keep building, but that word likewise means that what happened before doesn't mean it's just for men. What happened before is for all of us. What happens next is for all of us. So he's, he's building this case that this is what a healthy, transformed life looks like. Older women, likewise. Along with those other things, here's what he gets kind of culturally specific to the women in this moment. He says, you're going to have a behavior fitting for those who are holy. This kind of goes back to that idea of dignified with the men. That, that word there is only seen one time in the Greek, and it literally means uh, like temple and service. And, and what, he, what he's saying there is it's kind of like you're, you're fit for a temple service, like priestess role. What he's saying is older women likewise are to be holy or fitting for those who are holy. He's saying that, that what, what it compares to is that you're supposed to be in the service of God all the time when his presence goes before you and works through you. That everywhere you go, you're in service of a God who is good. Every relationship we step into, every job we take, you're supposed to act like you're in service to God in his temple. It's a reverent way to live. Not just on Sunday mornings at church when we bring our best and brightest to the people that we want to love us and think that we're in control. <laughs> you are going to live in a way that shows people that you're in the service of God, fitting for those who are holy. And then he says, not slandering and not slaves to excessive drinking. And this is probably a first century world thing here. Um, we're going to talk next week a little more about what's happening in the first century world, especially with women as he talks about younger women. But just the idea, I think, for all of us, that, that slandering, literally the word there in the Greek, that the root of it comes from like devil. So it's bad. And when we talk about slandering, we, we just have to realize, I think through all times and spaces and places, but especially ours now when words are so easy to come by and seemingly have less and less value because we use so many of them in so many different mediums, we don't think they mean much, but they do. The Bible makes this case. Go to James 3 and read a little bit. It says that the power of the tongue can move majestic things. When God chose to create, you know how he did it? He could have snapped his fingers he could have done the little bewitched nose twiggle thing, you know? God doesn't have a nose, but you get the point. God spoke the world into existence. I think there's power in how we talk to one another and how we talk about ourselves. That's a different sermon. But he's saying here what slander does is it uses God's good gift of words that literally formed the world around us and it uses them for nefarious purposes to tear down and not build up, to kill and not give life. And so he says, don't do that. 
You're robbing people of their dignity and their self-worth and the imago Dei in them when you speak badly about them to somebody else. So he says, stop slandering people. It is not what God is about. Stop slandering them in how we talk about them. Stop slandering them in side prayer requests when they're not in the room. You know what I'm talking about. We slander all the time and we seemingly don't think it's of much weight because words are so easy to come by now. So he says, this is what we don't do as older godly examples. We don't slander and we, we aren't controlled by excessive drinking. It's a problem in Crete at the time. It's even a more uh, pointed word here that's used than in 1 Timothy when he talks about it. Clearly, there was a bunch of people getting drunk, and he says, don't do that. And this is what Ephesians talks about when it says, hey, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit in chapter 5. God doesn't have a problem with alcohol. God does have a problem when alcohol controls you and the Spirit doesn't anymore, because that's what happens. And so he says, hey, don't be controlled by anything but the Spirit. It parallels to what he said to the men. And then he goes on, and he says, but teaching what is good. And our text is buttoned, meaning this a beginning and the end that are the same. He starts by saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to communicate or teach or live out something that's, that communicates our, our behavior change because of a sound gospel. And then at the end, he says to the women, but teaching what is good. And if you skip down to verse 6, he actually says when he gets to the young men, encourage them towards. So with both the older and the younger, what you get is this weight of responsibility. He's saying to the women, teach the women what is good to the men. Encourage the young men to do what is good, to live in a way that reflects the gospel that we claim to be good in the first place. You are to live in such a way so that people might be changed too. What do we lose when we don't value all the ages and stages in our churches? We lose the godly examples that are supposed to show us what's next. We lose looking at somebody's life saying, man, I want to I be that, that God is good. What do we lose? We lose this fundamental principle that gospel community is built on godly examples. That's it. And so Paul starts by reminding them, this is where we begin, that from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve in Genesis to Jesus when he came, he he said that the godly examples among you are going to propel you towards gospel-centered communities. If you want to be different than the world around you, you need people to give you examples of what difference looks like. So what would I say to people I feel like they're older and might not have a place, or maybe younger and have an old soul and might not have a place. We need you because we need godly examples to be gospel community. I need it. I got to this church 13 years ago. I was 25, and at that point I was still wearing the H&M Deep Vs. You know what I'm talking about? Like Deep Vs, everybody. Amazing I made it this far, okay? Um, And one of the things that I I value about this church— I mean, I can't even put into words how much I value. I'm going to try. It's my job. One of the things that I value is the older and wiser people in this place that have helped me grow up. We have a really good cross-section. Tons of kids, but we also have a good bit of the older, wiser among us. I was hired as an assistant, part-time, middle school director. And I met families in this church like the Bakers and the Stewarts and the Schweers. I met families in this church that, that knew me then, and as their kids have grown up, and as I've watched them grow up, I've kind of grown up with them in some really beautiful and healthy ways. It has been so life-giving to me. I wouldn't be here without it. Gospel community, this one and in my life, is, is built on godly examples. 
What scares me in the churches right now, there's this movement called the Rise of the Duns where older people really say, I've heard that sermon before. I don't feel like I have a place. I'm just going to not go to church anymore. Who hurts all of us when that happens? Paul encourages those among them, those older, wiser saints among them to engage with others because they have a job to do. God, gospel communities are built on godly examples. Hey Amen. I need it still, you know, even though I find more and more gray hairs each and every day. I think it's a beautiful picture for how we're supposed to start the conversation of we are different. As I look ahead of me and I see people that are different and I want to be like that, and then hopefully people that are just starting out can look to me and see the same thing. It's this perpetual cycle of faith passed down through generations. It's built on hope, built on love, and that endures. So at CBC, I think we do this decently well. I think we can always get better at it. But you know, one of the places that we've seen the most growth here is Moms Together. <laughs> that, that whole ministry, that whole ministry is based on older women coming alongside of younger women who haven't slept much and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Let's talk about how good Jesus is. I think, like I said, we can teach young kids on Sunday morning. You might not think th- showing up to a four-year-old Sunday school room is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. We are shaped and formed by those who show up in our lives. So I'd say two things here. One, to the younger among us, um, don't be arrogant. Take help from people that are older. You can always learn something, you know? I think we have a culture where we just share arrogance online, especially now, and we don't realize that we need help from people that have gone before us. And as a Bible church, sometimes we fall into that too because we're not bound to a strict tradition of something. That's why I think there's beauty in, in when we read the scriptures together, it's a very high church, kind of Lutheran, Anglican, Methodist is what I grew up in tradition. It's, it's saying that people have gone before us and remembering that we can learn from them too. We're not reinventing the wheel here. There's nothing new under the sun. And then two, to the older and wiser among us, I'd say a few things. Be praying, be praying, be praying that God gives you opportunities to invest in others. And look, that could be a Moms Together group, that could be leading a small group, that could be subbing on a Sunday morning, that could just be finding somebody that you've met in the building that's younger and saying, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I think we should have a chat. That might be a formal mentoring program or a very informal one. I just asked the question, who are we growing up as we point people to God? Because that's important. Two, I'd say, get ready and get committed just to dive into this whole idea that Jesus says, the gospel Paul says that gospel communities are built on godly examples. I need it. We need it. It's how God says, this is how you're different. <laughs> this is how you're different. And in a world that seemingly doesn't value that demographic, I want to. I want to get up here and say, no, 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 no. Man, what we lose, what we lose when we, when we lose out on all of our demographics coming together is a full picture of the gospel and a full picture of the goodness of God. And as we come together, age and stage, gray hair and not, we're reminded that God loves all of us, that he's a place for all of us, and that he's doing something among us that's bigger than any one of us. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the full body of Christ. I'm thankful for all the kids that we have right now. I'm thankful for the families and the young families and the newly marrieds. I'm, I'm thankful for the empty nesters. I'm, I'm thankful for the people older than that. I'm thankful that we can get a picture of how good you are through all of our ages and stages. My prayer is that we know that we're in this together. My prayer is that we contribute collectively. My prayer is that we see the value in godly examples that have gone before us. 
So Holy Spirit, give us an opportunity to plug into that. Give us a desire to learn and a desire to grow others up that we might see the goodness of God. Pray things in his name. Amen.